Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 4. And uh, we have been doing a bird's eye view, remember, of the first three chapters for a couple of reasons. One, because we were gone for a little bit. And second reason, it would be helpful to kind of go over this again as we would be jumping into chapter 4, which really is kind of an extension and applications and more of the doctrine that is related there in the last, uh, from verses 20 down through verse 31 of chapter 3. So unless those verses are understood in those in this chapter 3, nothing in chapter 4 is going to make a whole lot of sense. And if chapters 1 through 3 up to verse 19 doesn't make any sense, then obviously what we begin to study, what we have been studying and what we shall study today as well will not make a whole lot of sense. So going over this is obviously some good ground that we need to trample over every once in a while so that we'll have an understanding of the need of the gospel, the need of justification, why there is a, a, a great enmity between man and God, why is this there, and what did God do to remedy that enmity and to put us back right uh, with Him. And this is what the gospel does. And this is why this is so important the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why you remember that uh, the Apostle Paul in Galatians, which has a similar content as the book of Romans, but, but for a different reason. But you see why in the book of Galatians, and especially chapter 1, that the Apostle Paul places a severe condemnation and anathema on those who would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when we pervert the gospel, we're perverting the very means or the use by which sinners are converted or saved or justified before God. So we're messing, as it were, with God's remedy. And He does not uh, uh, take, obviously, too highly to that. So we need to be right. We need to be correct in our own thinking. We need to be correct when we preach it. And correct even when you go out and you explain the gospel to your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones. There has to be, brethren, an understanding and a grasp of the doctrines of the gospel or we won't be able to be the effective witness that we ought to be. We want to be able to be a testimony, not like the Armenians who go out and just say just about anything to get anybody to do anything. That's not what we're about. We want to do this biblically and with knowledge that's gained from the Scriptures. And the Apostle Paul is not embarrassed at all to bring us through some what what would be considered by most deep doctrines as we come through these first few chapters of the book of Romans. I'm not necessarily saying they're deep. I'm just saying that's how people perceive them. I think they're laid out pretty plain uh, by the logic of the Apostle Paul as he was writing under the influence of God. But this is not something that you need to study in seminary. This is stuff that you study in church because this is the very thing that Paul is writing to churches. And the sad thing is that it's just not being done. And churches really have no grasp. I won't say all. You know what I'm saying. That I don't mean everybody. Uh, but there are many churches who do not have a grasp on the basics, the ABCs, as it were, of the gospel. And that's a sad thing in our day, isn't it? That we can be so ignorant. I'll put ourselves in this. We can be so ignorant on some of the basic truths of New Testament Christianity doctrine. And secondly, all of our walk 
unto Christ and towards God and, and killing sin and living unto God comes from this gospel's foundation. And brethren, if we're wrong on that, then there will be problems in our walk as well. So this is a very important matter. And to go over it then will not do us any harm whatsoever. I'm not ashamed of it, neither is the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to take his example and just continue to plow through this. Okay. What I'd like to look at this evening, though, is actually just verses 1 and 2 of Romans 4. Back up just a moment, and then we'll get into it. It says here, chapter 4, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Okay, what's Paul been doing here? Well, he's been setting forth a justification, that is, a right standing before God, by faith without the deeds or the works of the law. This is made very plainly in the book of Romans, for instance, in chapter 3, where he says there in verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And if we were to take the time, we could turn over the book of Galatians. And I trust you will in your private studies. You have opportunity. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Also, Galatians, the third chapter, is just full of the very thing that we've been looking at and we've been dealing with this. Now, to meet an objection that God would bring Himself or make Himself unjust to pardon sinners, He tells us in verse 26 then, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him, which believeth in Jesus. In other words, if the law of God doesn't save and the law of God points out sin, obviously men are sinners, then when God does justify sinners, something looks, something looks wrong here. It would be the human thinking. Something just isn't right. And so Paul has to affirm this. Now listen, don't worry about the justice of God in it. Don't worry about God's rectitude of Him doing what's right. He will be just and the justifier of all those who believe. So don't fear that. Don't fear that somehow God's law is going to be tucked away in some corner somewhere and it's not going to be taken care of. And That's not the point at all. Paul wants them to know that God will do Himself right in this, in this work of salvation. Also, though, to meet another objection that the law is useless, notice verse 31, he says, do we make... Do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, if the law does not save, the law only points out sinners, then by believing on Christ and God justifying us uh, uh, through that means, does this somehow say the law of God is no good? It's no, it's no use anymore? Let's get rid of it. Let's have nothing to do with it. No. He says, in fact, notice how strong words he uses. Now, if you go to the Greek that's underlined the authorized version, you will not see theos there in that text because it's not there. The term that's used it has to do with uh, by no means, we would say today probably in our language, but for the strongest way of saying no in that time was to say, God forbid. So, Paul here very strongly states, do we make void the law because of, of grace or through faith? 
No, God forbid that be so. In fact, he goes on to say, we establish the law, meaning that the law is not rendered useless by faith. Instead, it is upheld. The law of God is established, it's upheld, it's made what it's supposed to be made for. So, God's law is not cheated. God's person or his, uh, who He is is not cheated. None of that. When we say, when sinners are saved by faith and by grace. Now, there is a teaching today that's going around saying, well, what really has happened, though, is that God has lessened His standard. He sees that men cannot keep the law. So what he does, then he says, okay, well, the law is not good. I can't save them that way because they can't be saved. So what I'll do is I'll lower it and I'll just make faith the thing. So when they can get to faith, then I'll save them. That's the teaching that's going on today. And that is just as foreign from Scripture as salvation by works. Because that's what both of them really are. God does not lower his standard when he says you're justified by faith. In fact, Paul tells us again in verse 31... The standard is established up here. It's not down here. It's up here. And that's the way God has always done it. So that's what he means. But that's the two objection that he knows that he has to meet before he gets into chapter 4. Okay, so let's go to chapter 4 now and begin with verse 1. Paul says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaineth to the flesh, hath found? I want you to notice here, Paul asks another question. By the way, this will be one of Paul's many questions that he will be using in this epistle as well as he does in all other of his epistles. Questions are a very good way to cause people, the readers or the hearers, to think. And that's why you hear me a lot of times in my application or even in our explanation of Scripture to give questions. It's not that I really expect an answer out of you. It's just that I want you to begin to think. Think about the relationship of what we've been talking about, what the relationship the Scriptures have been saying. And that's what Paul is doing here. It's a rhetorical question. He's not sitting there at... um, Let me find out again where he was writing from here. He's not sitting at Corinth waiting for the mail to come in for them to answer chapter 4, verse 1. He's not doing that. It's a rhetorical question. He's going to give them the answer. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaineth to the flesh hath found? So Paul asks this question. And the question is, what can we ascertain about Abraham? What did Abraham find? What did he receive? Now what's the context of that? It's obviously about justification, isn't it? So it's the question is really, what did, how was Abraham justified? That's really the question. We were going to put it in today's vernacular and understanding all the context. That's all he's simply asking. What shall we say then that Abraham our father has pertained to the flesh hath found? How was Abraham justified? That's what his question really is. How do I know that? Look at verse 2. For if Abraham were justified by works. So I'm justified then in saying that the question in verse 1 has to do with how was Abraham justified? That's his question. Now, by this question, he's wanting us to consider, actually continue to consider if you think about it, that justification is not by works. This is the moving thrust of the Apostle Paul all through this up to this point. It's not by works. It's not by works. It's not by works. The other side, it's it's by faith. It's by faith. It's by faith. That is, that's the means by which we receive it. Those are the two driving things in the Apostle Paul at this point. So, 
He's asking, how was justified? How was Abraham justified? He wants us to show and to see here. He's trying to show and see here. It's not by works. Can't be by works. Paul is ruling out all works back now. Whether the law of Moses or any other commands of obedience. Now, how do I know that? Well, the first place, the law itself is ruled out in chapter 3, isn't it? Chapter 3 is, you cannot get around this, whether you've agreed with much of what we've said thus far. When you come to chapter 3, you can only see that the law cannot save. That's what it says. So we know for a fact then that the law of works is ruled out. But also other things are ruled out as well. All other obedience is ruled out. Do you know why? This is an interesting reason why. Because the written law of Moses hadn't been given when Abraham lived, had he? That's hundreds of years later. So Abraham could not claim obedience to the, the written law in order to be saying, well, what about the, the law? Is on Yes, we're all, all very aware of that. That's not the point that Paul is making here, though. He's talking about Jewish folks, according to the flesh, Jews. All other obedience then is ruled out in the fact that the law of Moses was hundreds of years after the life of Abraham. So, whatever God told Abraham in the Old Testament had nothing to do, I mean, in his obedience, had nothing to do with him being saved as far as the, the bringing of it on to him being saved. And Paul here is wanting us to see that it is faith apart from any works whether the works of the law or any obedience to God. Salvation or faith does not come, or uh, salvation or justification does not come by some act of ourselves. And Abraham is brought out now in this discussion as an example of someone who is justified, and this is the, the Reformation formula, who are justified by faith alone. Now, when we say faith alone, you understand we're not saying there are not works that go along with faith. Faith without works is dead. We understand all of that. But when it comes to this matter of justification, God does not take into account our works. He doesn't look and say, okay, there's someone who's doing this much, this much. Oh, he's justified. Check. That's not what he does. God, as we see down in verse 5, doesn't justify the godly. He justifies the ungodly. He finds us in sin. He finds us in depths of depravity, lawbreakers, no obedience whatsoever on our account. And he says, that's the kind of folks I justify. The ungodly. Not the saved. Not the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance. But sinners, he says, the Lord Jesus. So, it is ungodly folks that, that God justifies. So, Abraham then is brought into this discussion now to prove this fact that of that very statement. Also, since he's considered the father of the Jews, notice back down in verse 1 again, he says, as pertaining to the flesh, the Jews claimed Abraham by virtue of their descent from him. Remember, they were children of Abraham, or they considered themselves children because they were related to him. Bloodline. Remember, it went from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to the twelve tribes and finally whatever they were down to this very time that Paul is writing that. So he's bringing in Abraham for the reason first to show 
not justified by any kind of works. Secondly, because he's the father of the Jews. And as well, though, we'll learn that he's the father of really of all those who believe. He's not the father of the Jews in that sense. He's the father of those who believe, whether Jew or Gentile for that matter. So we're not left out of this, are we? So there's some blessing in that. Okay, secondly, let's go to verse 2. This is where we spend the remainder of the time uh, this evening. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. Okay, verse 2 here relates partially to Paul's question back in verse 1. That's why we study the context very closely, because this is what this would tell us. And verse 2 then would lead us to conclude, Abraham found himself justified before God, but it wasn't by works, was it? What did Abraham find? According to verse 2, he was found justified without works. That is, it was without his obedience to God. Verse 2 concludes that if Abraham was justified by works, he would have reason to glory in this standing. He could boast. He could say, well, I'm, I'm justified because I'm circumcised. I'm justified because I offered up my son. I was obedient to God. But that's only after, actually. Abraham was justified. If Abraham was justified by works, he would have reason to stand there and boast. For if Abraham were justified by works, he had wherefore to glory. But even God, or excuse me, even Paul here immense that it couldn't be towards God, though. Look at the rest of that passage. But not before God. If Abraham was justified by works, he could boast to all of us, but he still couldn't do it before God. And that's why justification is actually before. It's God, not man. It's the Lord that justifies. Now, why? Why couldn't Abraham be justified by works? What would be the reason as to why this man, Abraham, who is the father of the Jews, the father of the faithful, a major historical person found in the Old Testament, takes up a lot of ink there in the book of Genesis, the uh, chapters in Genesis. Why could he not be justified by work? Why couldn't a man as faithful and as godly as Abraham not be justified by works? What would be one reason? Because though he was still Abraham, he would be the same reason as why any man could not be justified before God. Remember what we've studied in Genesis 1, or excuse me, in uh, uh, Romans 1, 2, and 3? All men are sinners by nature, and the law finds them guilty. All sinners. And that would include sinner Abraham. He too is found guilty before God. His mouth as well is stopped. And again, if you go back to the Old Testament and you begin to learn about something of the first part of Abraham's life, Abraham was an idolater before God called him out of the Earl of the Chaldees. Abraham worshipped false gods along with the rest of his family. 
Abraham was an idolater. When he was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, God caught him with an elder, with an idol in his hand, so to speak. He was a wicked, God-forsaken heathen. Now, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Say that about Abraham. But it's the truth. He worshipped the gods on the other side of the river, said Joshua. So he was a guilty sinner. So Abraham couldn't then find justification by works because he was already guilty of sin. Secondly, he couldn't do so because obedience to the law for justification, as we've seen with everyone else, is impossible. Can a man, as we've seen in chapter 3 especially, find justification by the law? Of course not. Why? Because the law was never given to justify folks, was it? And so the same would be for Abraham. Abraham couldn't find justification in obedience because obedience to the law of God was not the reason why God justifies sinners. And then thirdly, and I know this is all old hat here, but this is the point that Paul is making, the law can in this instance, that is the context, can only condemn, can it? Does the law ever save? No. Verily, if righteousness would have been by the law, the Bible says, there would have been a law for it. Galatians chapter 3. But instead, the law in this context... Now, I say that for this reason. There are other places in the Scripture where the law is used in different senses and for different reasons. But when it comes to this issue that Paul is talking about here, especially in chapter 3 and also chapter 4, the law's office here is to condemn. Look at chapter 3, verse 19 again. Now we know what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is what pointed out to Abraham he was a sinner, whether the moral law or the written law. Either one. It's both the same. He's guilty. Also, chapter 4, verse 15, because the law worketh wrath. It doesn't worketh justification. It worketh wrath. It doesn't work righteousness. It works, actually, condemnation and sin. Because the law worketh wrath, but where no law is, there is no transgression. So what is he saying here? The law, then, only can condemn Abraham. It cannot save Abraham. Go to Galatians chapter 3. In verse 10. I know you know this because we've preached on this. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Abraham did not, could not continue. And that perpetual, full, and complete obedience that the law demanded. So could Abraham then, by any stretch of the imagination, be justified by the law? No. Impossible. Whether he's a Jew, or whether he's Gentile, or whether he's Abraham. It's impossible. Out of time already. Okay, well, let me just work very quickly. 
show us that this is not Mark Langley's theory or Mark Langley's doctrine. Well, I'll take it a step further. That that's not just Paul's doctrine. Let's just say, for instance, you understand me correctly. And you say, for instance, yes, Mark Langley is teaching according to the Apostle Paul. Let's grant that. And you say, well, the reason I say that, there was a few years ago when I was in the hospital, I had back surgery over in Kansas City, and I was in an Episcopal hospital. I didn't know that's what it was, but that's because they were all dressed up like that's other religion, and I thought they were somebody else. The guy came in, the whatever he was, the chaplain came in, he was in his garb and everything, and he was talking to me, and I, I we were, got on the doctrines of grace and, uh, and Calvinism and stuff like that, because he being Anglican, he should have believed them. They're in this confession. He had to agree to them before he was ordained. And he says, you know, I don't believe them. He says, I will admit this. The Apostle Paul taught them, though. But I just think the Apostle Paul was wrong. Not since that was his words. He admitted from Scripture that in Scripture that the Apostle Paul taught the very thing of what we would call Calvinism. It did teach election and predestination and the decrees of God. He says, I cannot deny it. That's exactly what the Bible says. But the point is, Paul was wrong. Now, that's sad, isn't it? I was thankful he had enough light to see that the Apostle Paul was at least teaching that. But he cut his legs off when he said, but Paul was wrong. Isn't that sad? People will get out from under-believing that doctrine no matter what. I mean, it's, they, they spend up a lot of time dreaming up ideas to deny something that's so plainly taught in Scripture, don't they? Okay, so you agree with me that salvation isn't by works. Justification can't come by works. And you may even agree that the Apostle Paul himself has taught that here. But it goes back even a step further than that. Paul does not ground his teaching upon any kind of New Testament revelation. Look at verse 3. This is the amazing thing. For what saith the Scripture? Where does Paul take it back to? The Word of God, doesn't he? Takes it clear back to the foundation of all of our understanding all of our doctrine, all of our ground, everything. He takes it back to the Scripture. And guess where he takes it from? It's not Matthew, it's not Mark, it's not Luke, it's not John. It's not any of the epistles he has written or going to write. It's not any of the epistles of John. It's not any of the epistles of Peter and Jude. And if I left anybody else out, I don't know. Guess where he takes it from? The Old Testament. Notice the, pri- the scripture he uses. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Where is he taking that from? Well, if you've got a center reference, it's easy to look. But you know, they didn't have that at the time. So I don't know how they found that. He took it from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And he says, back there in the book of Genesis is where this doctrine is taught. That salvation is not by works or he would have reason to glory. 
It cannot come by the law because the law will condemn. The law points out sin. The law has found all men guilty. He says, instead, the law of God itself, the book of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 in particular, if you want to hone it down, teaches that Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He says, that's proof of the pudding that I'm talking about. Don't take my word for it. Paul says. And I'm telling you here tonight as well, this afternoon as well, don't take Mark Langley's word for it. Thus saith the Scripture. And notice this, Paul puts in a, a, a personality to the Word of God. For what saith the Scripture? The Scripture speaks. The Scripture is not silent on this doctrine of the Gospel and how men are made right in God's sight. The, the, the Old Testament in particular and the Scripture in particular speaks very loudly and very plainly from Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And if you go back to that, and we will next week, but for now, if you were to go back to that text, you'll see what it's referring to. Abraham believed what God said he was going to do. And that was the means of his justification. That was the means of him being counted righteous. It wasn't his faith that made him righteous. That's not even in the picture at the moment. And people have misunderstood verse 5 to say that, but that's not really what it's talking about there. But the point is, it's faith was how it came unto him to be accounted righteous. That's not New Testament doctrine. Paul says, that's old covenant teaching too. It shows us again that salvation is by grace through faith under any so-called dispensation or any covenants that God has given throughout the Scriptures. Whether the old covenant in particular or the new covenant, it's all the same. We believe the testimony of God for justification. Now, true, in the New Covenant, it, it's honed down, it's particularized, but nonetheless, it's still the same. It's by faith in something, something that God has said unto us. Okay, so next week then, Lord willing, we'll see the scriptural doctrine of this as we see that it's not just an old New Testament revelation, which it is, but even in the Old Testament. So Now, let's go back to some observation as we quit here this morning, afternoon. First of all, let us see once again the use of being thoroughly grounded around the context of a passage of Scripture. That's exactly what we see here Paul doing. Paul is building us up to this point to where we are in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is not just out of the blue somewhere, is it? This originates from the context of what he has been saying in the last three chapters. So don't ever get tired of hearing the fact that we have to see what the Bible is saying before we make a comment on it. It's necessary, brethren. If we want to have an up-to-date scriptural understanding of the Scripture, it has to be according as God has written it and not add our ideas into it. And that's a very easy thing to do, but we don't see the Apostle Paul doing that, do we? He is very careful 
about bringing us to this point that we're at. Secondly, I want you to also notice in Paul's method here of getting the gospel understood by us, he's not afraid to use arguments. Now, sometimes we'll use the word argument today in a bad sense, like two brethren arguing, and that's not what we mean here. But when we say arguments in this sense, he's building upon some steps, just like we're talking about the context a moment ago, in which he's going to begin to say things. And now whatever he says is always placed upon... Uh, goes back to what he had said previously. So not only is the context important, but the fact, brethren, that we are to be, quote, logical and argumentative in the sense that I'm explaining it here when it comes to our preaching and understanding of Scripture. Don't be afraid to hear that. Don't think, it, well, that's just carnal reasoning. No, brethren, that is biblical reasoning. It's not carnal to accept the way and the manner in which the Scriptures teach it, is it? I don't think so. I think that's the example that is left for us. Third example, or third uh, testimony here this evening in regards to this or afternoon is the, get, the thing about the questions and answers session that he's given us here. Again, Paul is obviously given us rhetorical questions here. But there are questions in order to make these brethren think. So when I'm preaching, I will very often then put questions within my sermon. And the purpose of that is, is to make you think, just as Paul made his readers think. So brethren, if we want to deal in the realities of true sermonizing, then we ought to base our sermonizing upon Scripture, hadn't we? And do it like God does it. Do it like Paul did it. And begin to probe the minds of the folks. And you shouldn't mind that. You should not fight and kick against the fact that I'm either the Bible or myself as we're teaching these things is probing your thinking. That's what we're to do. That's what Paul is doing. And it's not a matter of me telling you what to think. It's a matter of drawing your mind to biblical principles and biblical truths. So again, I'm not expecting a creaking over there. I'm not expecting answers audibly from you, but I am expecting you to think when we set forth questions. Okay? That's a fair thing, don't you think? There's a question. Okay. The fourth thing. Notice how the Apostle Paul here uses Old Testament figures to help us in our understanding. Paul, you and I think Brother Jones prayed this in our in the, the room earlier today when we were, before we came in here, he, he prayed about the fact that uh, God has used the uh, individuals of Scripture to see how things work out. That's what Paul does. Those men are here to help us to see that it's to put the, the, the flesh on the bones, as it were. It's put the clothes on the people. So we can really see what Abraham looked like as a justified man. How he came to be justified. We see some important aspects that is necessary for us to know by looking at a man named Abraham who lived thousands of years ago. And this is why let me encourage you to read biblical biographical information gleaned from the Scriptures. Study the lives of Abraham, the lives of, of uh, Noah, and the lives of Paul, or the lives of Peter, or David, and so forth. 
Because there we see real walking men. It's not like they're just... they, They were men, as Paul talks about, of like passions with us. And the stumblings and the failures that Abraham has just shows us that we're going to have them too. And we shouldn't be defeated when we see our stumblings matching sometimes the saints of old. Or we ought to be encouraged when we see our faithfulness being wrought out as the faithfulness of those of old. That should encourage us, shouldn't it? Well, I'm living, striving to live and see some of the footprints of Abraham in my life. A man of faith, walking faithfully before the Lord. That I encourage us. Anyway, it's there. Take it. Go for it. And then lastly, the fact that it is the Scripture that regulates our doctrine. And not vice versa. It's not our doctrine, brethren, that regulates the Scripture. Though that can be the case, we don't want it that way. We want to take from the Bible and determine our, our doctrine and not reading our doctrine into the Bible. That's easier said than done, I assure you. It sounds like an easy principle, doesn't it? But then you'll find out just how hard it is when you begin to expound the Scriptures. Some of you have found it out in your family worships, haven't you? Sometimes it's difficult, isn't it, to understand a passage of Scripture when you're reading and you're trying to especially as a father, stumble over a verse or two trying to make heads or tell of it before your family. But it's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. It's natural. So let us be careful. And let us also take solace from the Word of God.